Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Welcome to the 301st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Chip Jacobs, author of the debut novel, Arroyo. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Chip Jacobs. Jacobs is the author of the new novel, Arroyo. Jacob's previous nonfiction books include As It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Zoller, The People's Republic of Chemicals, and the international best-selling Smog Town, The Lung-Burning History of Pollution in Los Angeles, both with William J. Kelly, and The Ascension of Jerry. Chip Jacobs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Arroyo yet, how would you describe your new novel? I would describe my novel as a historical look at uh, Pasadena, California, best known for the Rose Bowl, Rose Parade, um, during the progressive age in America, 1913. Anything seemed possible. Uh, Electricity was just coming online. Electric typewriters. Uh, new medicines, automobiles, first and foremost. And my story is really about a young solar power inventor and a clairvoyant dog that are both drawn to this bridge that is um, just a uh, representative and a uh, welcome mat for the great city um, on the Arroyo Seco. And um, you know what first seems like a miracle, this vaulting concrete that's going to allow motor cars to cross a dangerous ravine becomes uh, an object of politics, bad blood, and in the end, death and mystery. And do you remember the original idea that led you to write Arroyo? Uh, absolutely. Uh, as a somewhat of a rambunctious teenager, I got into a car accident in the parking lot below the Colorado Street Bridge. And when I got out, and I had a rather checkered driver's driving record by then. And when I got out to inspect the horror in the back of my parents' station wagon, I looked up and this, I swear, this bridge and these kind of noirish, 
uh, fluted lamps and flyover uh, pedestrian bays seemed to be looking down at me. And, you know, I later became a journalist. Uh, I wrote a freelance story about the construction accident that the city kind of has swept under the rug. And I, it just felt like a natural uh, environment in which to write a story. Then when I looked around and found, oh, my gosh, you know, not only was there excitement about the automobile age and these magical parts of Pasadena, but, you know, we had Teddy Roosevelt, Upton Sinclair, famous writers and astronomers around. So it was really a rich setting. And were there things about Pasadena and the Colorado Street Bridge that surprised you when that you discovered when you were doing your research for the novel? Uh, there was, uh, you know, um, because we've lived with cars all our lives, we don't appreciate at the dawn of the automobile age um, how hungry different parts of the economy and business people and companies and groups were to create an automobile industrial complex. And I mean, basically, even before the bridge was open to traffic in 1913, the Automobile Club of Southern California had already knocked signs into the hillside saying, New York, 2,700 miles to the east, downtown Los Angeles, 20 miles to the west. And th so there was just this, uh, you know, kind of fever dream of a new way of life. Also, um, you know, in terms of the bridge, it's uh, it, it, you have to go down a little grade to drive it from Colorado Street or Colorado Boulevard is where we know today. That's where the Rose Parade uh, runs. You know, millions of Americans hung over on New Year's Day, you know, see it. Um, it was because of the influence of the wealthy uh, that set up on what was called Millionaire's Row in Pasadena. They didn't want this uh, sweeping rounded bridge to block their view of the mountains. So just like today, you know, the, the affluent hold somewhat outsized power. And just like today, you know, there's always uh, a hunger for a new industry. And you, you're talking about the, the dawn of the automobile age. And um, you mentioned the signs that point the way to downtown Los Angeles or New York City. Um, obviously, um, you're in the greater Los Angeles area and we're recording this uh, during this pandemic. I'm curious, what has been the, the impact of the stay-at-home order in terms of the, uh, normal, uh, the normal life of L.A., which is behind the wheel? Uh, you know, um, it, it, I guess it's a sad irony that it takes a pandemic to make Los Angeles work again in terms of mobility. Um, I recently drove out to Marina del Rey, and, uh, which is on the coast. I'm inland in Pasadena, and what normally would be an hour and 15-minute drive took me 35 minutes. Uh, you can get around. You're not uh, backed up at traffic lights. Um, it's free-flowing. And um, as you know, Los or may know, Los Angeles has got the worst traffic in the United States. It has for decades. It's just been an epic failure. And this is very consistent uh, with other disasters. And when I was a reporter, you know, you'd always see the same thing. Um, after 9-11, after uh, an earthquake, after a riot, uh, the freeways and roadways would be uh, immaculate and uh, freewheeling. And then as soon as the danger passed, like uh, the roadways are like nature. They just detest a vacuum and they just became gridlock almost immediately. 
Well, as you mentioned, you, you're a reporter and you've written and published several nonfiction books. How was the transition for you to fiction with Arroyo? Uh, you know, it's, um, I think because writing has always come easy to me. I, I moved into the fiction space with a pretty cocky attitude that I can I can do this. You know, I'm as good as this person or I can turn a phrase as well as that person. And uh, it was a very humbling experience, Jeff. Um, it took me probably eight drafts to get the basic idea right. And then 500 hours of crafting and sculpting and erasing and rethinking things. It's uh, writing a novel is just a more intricate operation because you have to, you know, take readers on an arc with characters that uh, you don't have to worry about when you do nonfiction because their actual life story leads you to where you want to go. This is like a wide open universe. And sometimes all that freedom can be actually very um, uh, imprisoning because, uh, you know, you don't understand you have a you have a mission, which is to show your characters changing over time and not letting a exciting backdrop overtake the story. So it was by far the hardest writing assignment I've ever tackled. And so what are you what are your earliest memories of reading and books? Oh, that's an excellent question. Nobody has asked me that. I, I'll, um, I remember very clearly as a little kid uh, being on my bunk bed and reading um, things like The Three Musketeers, Robinson Crusoe, um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, Catcher, Catcher in the Rye, one of my favorite all-time books. Um, you know, and of course, more, uh, you know, books geared to younger people like The Oxbow Incident. Um, things Fall Apart. Um, I, I just I, I just absolutely adored books. And I came from I was the youngest child of a rather dysfunctional childhood. And I was alone a lot of time. And so I would curl up with my beagle and a book and probably some, you know, illicit chocolate I s stole out of my mother's pantry and would be there for hours. And so what was the path to publication for you to get your first book published? Um, my very first book, or, mm -hmm. or yeah, your or very one. first book. Um, I would say my first. Uh, it it, um, it well, it required finding an agent, uh, having an idea. This is my smog book. Mm -hmm. um, um, trying to understand where my book would fit and how it's going to stand out. And I remember back in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, Amazon was not the robust website right. and juggernaut that it is today. And my fingers kind of timidly typed in the search engine, air pollution, smog. I mean, I'd grown up in a very air pollution Pasadena. So, um, you know, I found there was no, I found there was no um, books on it. Well, uh, I, we got an agent very quickly, but, you know, um, from then on, it's, you know, as a writer, you kind of hand over control, like a, a musician to the company producing your work. And, um, you know, the agent I had was great, but he was older, he got sick, things weren't so transparent. Um, the editing process was by far the most chaotic I'd ever undergone, where I had multiple editors, was edit were editing chapters backwards, you know, instead of going chronologically in a linear <laughs> way. It, it, was, it was tough. And then of course, you know, I'm putting out the book uh, with my co-writer in November, 2008, which was, 
the probably the worst part of the Great Recession. And where we normally expect to be a bestseller, have packed rooms, you know, it, it didn't turn out that way. So it was a very sobering experience. Things changed, but, you know, you have to have a thick skin and an ability to accept rejection and curveballs to be an author. Well, you, you, we discussed earlier the, the dawn of the automobile age and, and how this pandemic has changed um, the, the traffic patterns in, in the greater L.A. area. Um, and, you know, you just mentioned your book on smog. I'm just curious, are, are you familiar with the work of James Howard? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I don't he's, think he's, so. He's, he's uh, a very outspoken um, opponent of sprawl and um, the the American, you know, yeah. uh, passion for gas guzzlers. And I was just, I was just curious where, where, I mean, obviously given the research and writing that you've done, where do you see, um, you know, traffic and automobiles headed um, in, you know, let's say Southern California um, in the years ahead? I mean, obviously, you know, one thing that I would, you know, think would, would be an impact is the growth of, of electric vehicles, Tesla and others as well. What, what, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, um, uh, there's a misperception. It's a, it's a very trenchant question, there, but there is a misperception that Californians are Prius driving, granola munching, uh, solar power uh, consuming citizens. That's not true. You know, as I learned in my sm our smog book, you know, it's a very passive environmentalism where people allow themselves to get taxed every which way so they can live with the irreconcilable uh, conditions of uh, of clean air and, uh, uh, you know, sink, uh, affordable cars or maybe even two car households. Most projections, believe it or not, show um, car ownership is going to plunge in the future. Maybe even only, even maybe like by 90%. We're talking maybe a generation away because of the advent of self driving cars, um, AI um, driven traffic, uh, where cars move in pods, and the explosion of people working from home. Um, I read one story that said, you know, eventually um, you're going to get an ambulance at your house, a self driven ambulance, like within 10 seconds. Um, it just could because it's going to be using such advanced modeling and prediction. Um, and Uber will be here not long after. Um, you know, so the the car culture, which is so identified with L.A., is going to undergo radical, radical transformation. Uh, electric cars 
which you asked about, you know, they only represent two or three percent right. of the roads and the cars in California. Most people have stuck with the traditional gas guzzlers. And um, you mentioned sprawl as well. You know, sprawl was sort of the branding of Southern California at the turn of the century when the Colorado Street Bridge was being built. You know, people uh, looking for a different way of life than the tenements in New York or cramped together townhouses of Chicago, et cetera. You know, they wanted uh, more freedom, more personal space, you know, sort of manifest destiny, have your own backyard. And places like Pasadena allowed that. And um, today, because the, today, all that sprawl, all those freeways connecting people to sub suburbs and exurbs has come back to bite us. And we're trying to live more like New York these days, throwing up apartment buildings left and right. And in fact, you know, I tried to somewhat tease this into my book, Arroyo, you know, um, where my character in the first life is living in a, in a landscape of Victorians and craftsman houses and bungalows and nothing very tall. He's coming back to a city that's building apartment buildings like they're going out of style. So, you know, all that's old is new again. And, you know, suburban sprawl, uh, you know, uh, it uh, only works when freeways work, when there's job centers uh, that don't make people drive for two hours. And now with climate change, I don't know if we can afford uh, urban sprawl. So what was your writing process like for Arroyo? You mentioned earlier the eight drafts and, and what a challenge yes. it was to make the shift from nonfiction to fiction. Did you outline the novel extensively before writing or did you write more organically? What was that process like for you? Well, you've heard of the fear of the blank screen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think I was, uh, I almost like had PTSD towards it. I, I, uh, I, I wrote a 30,000 word treatment of my book because I was so uh, apprehensive about commencing it, writing that first word, that first chapter. My father died during the middle of the process. Uh, that threw me for a loop. You know, it's, um, having uh, a very restless curiosity and probably a little ADD myself, you know, it, um, the internet and something you're interested in is only five seconds away. And I had to really kind of almost put like blinders, horse blinders on myself. After my debt, when I saw my deadline looming, I hadn't got enough done. I didn't have a proper ending for my book. And it just, it took a lot of discipline. And so I normally would work, you know, um, in crunch time, seven days a week from about nine to seven. And um, I actually gave myself a medical condition pushing to it. I gave myself something called trigger finger, where you inflame a tendon in, in one of your digits, in this Ouch. case, my thumb. I mean, I was hitting the space bar so much, uh, you know, I could barely move my hand. But I'll, I'll tell you, it's it's working yourself to exhaustion where you really can have a lens inside of yourself and know what you're capable of. So what what advice would you what writing advice would you offer for listeners who are writing their own stories or novels or even uh, someone who's working on a nonfiction book? Um, I would say, first and foremost, write the book you would want to read. Writing and, and, you know, literature, especially fiction, is so subjective. People have reacted to my book. Somebody, one reviewer said, it's a quirky tale you're either going to love or love or loathe. That's okay. It's okay to have people that are not on board. You just have to feel like what you wrote is something only you can do. 
you're happy to have it as your legacy, but you just have to stand firm inside of yourself and not look outside to reviewers. I would tell people, you know, um, to read, uh, read in the genre they're hoping to write and outside their genre. Whatever they do, just always keep reading, whether it's toaster instructions, whether it's, you know, a, a gardening story in the New York Times, whether it's a pamphlet in a doctor's office, your mind is, is like a sponge and you can always see new ways of phrasing things and, and uh, be open to new ideas. So you have to have a very fertile mind. Um, I would also just tell you, um, uh, if you're going to buy one book on writing by Stephen King's memoir, which uh, lays out step-by-step advice about concentration, uh, proper use of adverbs, the necessity for for uh, for right grammar and taking risks. Um, so I, those are the things I, I would tell you. You know, I mean, there's there's uh, an old idea that I learned is true, which is once you're done with your first draft, put it away for a few weeks. Don't even think about it, and come back. And it, it it's like being reborn in a, from a literature wise uh, literature wise way because you, you will see holes in your story. You'll see the beauty in your story. But when you get too close to something, you're always going to uh, miss peripheral vision. So, you know, um, you have a process, write down goals and whatever you do, you know, just know that your first draft is going to be kind of a piece of crap. To be honest with you, they all are. And, and that's the beginning to making something uh, that's going to be a work of art eventually. And so what books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, uh, I'm a big fan of Gillian Flynn, uh, you know, uh, Gone Girl, uh, although I did like um, uh, uh, some of her other novels uh, more. I, I, I absolutely adored All the Light You Can See, uh, the Pulitzer winning book. Right now, um, I'm getting ready to write a, a follow-up novel, which will be Pasadena-centric, but it's not going to be historical fiction. I'm reading the biography of a psychic named Edgar Casey, who was absolutely a fascinating person who was kind of a simple farm boy who uh, did very poorly at school. And uh, he had sort of a religious experience, uh, spiritual experience, uh, just like I did. But unlike me, he could sleep on a book and know its contents in the morning. <laughs> Eventually, he trained himself to go into trances and without any medical school or scientific knowledge, diagnose complex medical problems uh, and, and prescribe holistic treatments that were uh, just remarkably effective. He later uh, became attuned to reincarnation, to understanding the journey of our souls. He really kind of was like a, a, a bumpkin of a Jesus. And um, I, I'm going to work him into my next novel because I always feel like, you know, um, readers want to want to learn something even inside fiction and having true life historical fictions are really, is really tantalizing. And so where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your books and your new novel, Arroyo? Uh, I'd say the best place is my website, chipjacobs.com. Uh, I have an Amazon page. Uh, where you can learn more about my books. Um, you know, uh, I'm on Twitter although and Facebook, although I'm not a uh, giant consumer or advocate of social media. I, would, I, I, I just want to read and tell, write stories, but it's a different age, as you know. So, you know, chipjacobs.com, people can see my reporting, my columns, read about my other books, and I do have a blog, 
And um, I just produced an essay about my experience as an eight-year-old boy when I got hit in the face with a baseball. And that night I had a uh, visitor appear in my room. And it was the most personal, intimate story I've ever shared in my life. And um, it was part of the reason I wrote this book. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Chip Jacobs. Chip's novel, Arroyo, is available now, so go buy a copy. And Chip, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much. I had a blast. Great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money.